Merry Christmas Eve, everybody. Thank you. It's looking real festive in here. That's great. We're going to have our kiddos in here as well. And I'm really glad that you guys are here to celebrate this final day of Advent all together. If, if, if you've been a part of this church family and community, then you would know that this has been a season of uh, just growing slowly in anticipation. And, and it's an anticipation of something that uh, is not just a month in the making. It's not just a few years in the making. It is of the oldest promise that's ever been made. And, and it is for the newest development in God's just grand story of redemption, which is the birth of Christ, the Savior of the world. But this morning, we're looking at a pretty non-traditional Bible text for Christmas Eve. So usually, we would look at a passage that summarizes Jesus' birth. Maybe uh, most churches across the world right now are looking at Luke chapter 2, maybe Matthew chapter 1, maybe even John chapter 1, but we've decided to do something a little bit different this morning. Instead of looking at the beginning of Jesus' life on earth and focusing on his first coming, I I want us to see, the uh, get a glimpse for the second coming of Jesus. Now, why would we do this? The reason why we want to do this is because if we can't be excited about what Jesus will ultimately accomplish with his life, then there is no reason, really no possibility, of us being genuinely excited for him being born to begin with. Because the hype of Christmas, the joy that leads us to explode with generosity to others around us, the love that overflows out of us into all the people around us, the peace that warms us. It's all just manufactured if it's not rooted in its true origin, which is a hope in Jesus Christ and his eventual final heavenly reign and rule at the end of time. And that's what we get a glimpse of in the book of Revelation. We don't have time this morning to do a super deep dive into the book of Revelation, but they're still blessing and dipping our toes into the water. And so here's what I hope to be able to accomplish this morning, that we would get a glimpse of what this final product of God's redemption will look like, and that as we get that snapshot of this new heavens and this new earth and everything that is going to be ultimately accomplished by Jesus, that we would be able to have a genuine hope, a genuine joy and anticipation and excitement for what tomorrow is actually going to bring. Before we jump into verse 1, let's pray again together. Father, I thank you for your people who are here this morning, God. I pray that you would give us all eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to be able to receive your word. Lord, give us a glimpse of heaven and build in us a genuine joy for the things that you will accomplish and do, God. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. When we think of heaven, what do we picture in our minds? Would you say clouds? Clouds, yeah. There's no shortage of ideas. We're not actually going to poll the audience right now. Uh, I've looked at some online polls, and the majority of Americans believe that heaven exists. Well, 73% of Americans believe that heaven exists. And of the 73%, here's, uh, here are the two top ideas. So number one, we'll be free from suffering. So th- that's what heaven means. And number two, we'll be reunited with loved ones who have died previously. So those are like the two top beliefs about heaven. Other popular ideas about heaven, um, 
I'll just list some. So we'll have perfectly healthy bodies. Uh, we'll be reunited with pets or animals that we knew on earth. We can see what's happening on earth. We will become angels. We'll be able to have relationships with people who are still living on earth. And then we will have the option to choose whether or not to stop existing. So these are like the top beliefs about heaven and that the popularity of each of those beliefs decreased as I went through that list. So there's a lot of ideas about what heaven will be like. And, and I don't think, though, that God's intention for us is just to guess about what it's going to be like. Contrary to what we might believe or hear, heaven is not what you just want it to be uh, or, or what you make of it when you get there. God gives us a glimpse of what heaven will actually be like here in Revelation. Now, I'm not saying that God explains exactly and precisely every aspect of heaven, but he does give us a very vivid image of what I believe conveys the most critical things about heaven. And number one, as you read these first few verses, is that Jesus will be there. Jesus will be there. John describes this beautiful, pure river in verse one that's flowing from the throne of the Lamb. And he reiterates this in verse three, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. So that is the city of God that's described in chapter 21 previously, where all of God's people will ultimately live. So the primary thing that makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. Heaven is not primarily a place without suffering, nor is it primarily a place where our bodies will be made new. It is primarily the place where God is, in the presence of which all things are healed, restored, redeemed, and made new. The most incredible thing about heaven is not that you will get to see your grandmother or your dog. That would be great. But an eternity with your grandmother and your dog is not, it would not be eternally joyful. Eternity with God, your maker, the one whom you were made to be in an eternal, intimate relationship with, that is literally heaven. So we should look forward to heaven because that's where God will be. Notice the tree of life in these verses. Then again, down in verse 14, you see it again in verse 19. Oh, the tree of life with its tantalizing fruit back in Genesis. It's still here. It's still here. God didn't chop it down out of frustration. There's not a super tall fence around it. I think that's what we tend to do in response to the good things in our lives that are implicated in our own sin. But the tree of life was never the problem in Genesis. Our lack of trust in God, our rebellion against his command was what the problem was. And that problem has been resolved by Jesus. So what we see here is the tree of life. It's not posing a threat. It's not making anyone anxious in heaven. It is in beautiful bloom. It's the centerpiece of the city of heaven. And it's constantly bearing fruit that blesses the people of God forever and ever. That is going to be a visual reminder for us each and every day in heaven of just another thing that God has reconciled us with. Look at verse 4. It says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Heaven will not only be a place where God is, it will be a place where we will be able to behold the glory of God and see his face. This verse is in stark contrast to Exodus chapter 33, when Moses says to God, please God, show me your glory. And this is God's response, Exodus 33, verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. 
God is so glorious, so perfect, so holy, that if we, in our sinful, imperfect, unholy flesh, even look at God, we will die. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to reveal his glory to us and to Moses. God says to Moses, you found favor in my sight. I know you by name, so this is what I'm going to do. You're going to stand on this rock, and I'm going to walk by you, and I'm going to cover you so you don't die in my glory. And as I pass by you, I will take my hand away, and you'll get a glimpse of my back, but not my face. Moses saw God as he was walking away from Moses. In heaven, you will see God as he's walking toward you. There's no coverage. There's no veil. There is perfect clarity for the radiant glory of God. If the only part of a person that you can see is their back, that relationship is not ideal. So the fact that we, as humans, will be able to see the face of God, it is a big deal. And it's not because of how awesome of an experience that will actually be for us. I don't know how to quantify that for us or try to even understand it. Like, I've seen some things that are so beautiful that they will make me a little misty-eyed. I'll cry a little bit when I see them. But I've never seen something that is so beautiful that I would just drop dead. That's what we're seeing in part here. There's really no chart or scale to measure how glorious God's face will be. And so I think that a part of this, seeing God's face, it will be an amazing experience. But what's even more awesome is why we'll be able to see the face of God. Because what that will signify is that God has completed his work in us to restore us, to redeem us, to make us new, and to fully glorify us, to be able to be in a state where we actually can behold God. The, the work that God is doing in us will finally be brought to completion. Like it says in Philippians 1.6, the culmination of all of his work, all of our sanctification, it's not to finally make us comfortable. It's not to make us finally healthy or to make us finally never sad again or to be able to finally bear the fruit of the Spirit perfectly. Those are all great byproducts. But the greatest blessing of God's work being completed in us will be finally having the ability to stand in the presence of God and to stare into his infinitely beautiful face, behold his glory, and not drop dead. We will be in perfect relationship with God, not looking at his back, looking at his face. We should be excited about heaven because we will get to see the face of God. Not only will we be able to, will we be, able to be with God not only will we be able to see God in heaven, but our identity in Christ will be perfectly realized in heaven. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He's talking about heaven. Heaven will not only be a place where we can see God as we should in all of his high-definition glory, but it will also be a place where we can finally see ourselves as we should. This is probably one of the primary struggles of Christians today, to actually believe who we are in Christ. We tend to latch on to so many other things to find our identity, to define ourselves. Maybe it's our jobs. Maybe it's our careers. Maybe it's the things that we've been able to accomplish. 
Maybe it's in how we've been able to lead our families or how other people like us or if they don't like us or whether or not we have money or wealth or maybe our hobbies or whatever it brings us comfort. Like the list goes on and on of things that we can find our identities in. But these identities, they're never enough. We know this. They never satisfy us because we're not made to have our ultimate reality in any of these things. As Christians, we've probably experienced God breaking down some of these idols of identity to teach us that our ultimate identity isn't meant for those things, but it's meant to be in God. Now, this is a hard lesson to learn, and a lot of us are never going to learn it fully in this lifetime, but there will come a time when this lesson will be perfectly learned. And whose we are will be who we are. Jesus' name is going to be written on our foreheads. And that might seem really strange to you, but this is God saying, hey, this one is mine. This is my daughter. This is my son. Now, this is true today for us who are in Christ now. But in heaven, our adoption to God or by God is going to be fully manifested And there will be not a shadow of a doubt. It will be blatantly clear for all of God's heavenly host, for all of creation, and for us that we belong to God. And his promise will come to complete fruition that we see in Deuteronomy 7, 6, when God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We should be excited about heaven because we will finally have a full assurance of our identity as God's people that will never, ever be in doubt in heaven. Look at verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Heaven will be a place where there is no darkness at all. No darkness, no evil lurking, no temptation that's brewing inside of you, no prowling lions that are seeking to devour, no threat of Satan coming like a thief in the night to steal, kill, and destroy. Like, think about this for a moment. Everything that causes you anxiety right now, everything that terrifies you, everything that hurts you, everything that causes your heart to drop a little bit when you think about it, everything that causes a cold sweat in you, everything that makes you weep and mourn, every single ounce of darkness in creation and in you, which hides evil and sin, will be completely eradicated from existence. That's heaven. And in its place, light. Not from candles, not from light bulbs, not even from a giant burning ball of fire that is the sun. No, every light that we know of is inferior. It is insufficient for the lighting required in heaven. The only light that is adequate enough, the only light that has enough lumens for heaven is Jesus himself. He will be our light. That's how radiantly glorious he is. He who is the light of men, which darkness cannot overcome. That's John 1, verses 4 and 5. Jesus will perfectly illuminate heaven. And he will give us perfect clarity for all of eternity to be able to see everything. We should be excited about heaven because Jesus' light will give us nothing to fear ever again. Look at verse 6. 
And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. We should be excited about heaven because it's a real place. It's a real place. Everything we're reading in God's word is trustworthy and true. This is not a fairy tale ending that's meant to hit us in the feels and make us feel a little bit warm and fuzzy when we're down. Scripture is not a fictional story to help us soothe ourselves or maybe distract us from the real problems of life. This prophecy that's being given to us is not wishful thinking. It is given to us as a promise from God. And God has a perfect track record of fulfilling all of the things that he promises to do. So yes, there are some maybes about heaven. I'll give you that. Maybe your dog will be there and you'll get to see them. Maybe. Maybe there will be roller coasters in heaven. Maybe you'll be able to fly in heaven. But all of those things are superfluous. There is no maybe of whether or not the things that we're talking about right now will happen. Heaven is the end game which God has promised and which he is working everything toward and which he will accomplish. It's a real place. We should be excited about heaven because it is real. And we should be excited about heaven because it's coming soon. It's coming soon. Look, it's one thing if I were to tell you, I'm going to give you a present 20 years from now. It's going to be good. 20 years from now, I'm going to give it to you and you're going to love it. As opposed to, hey, I've got a present for you. Can you wait one minute? I just got to go to the car and get it, right? Like your level of anticipation and excitement is going to be different. Look at verse 6 and 7. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon, soon. Now, I don't have an exact time for you, and I would be skeptical, maybe even wary of anyone who tries to tell you an exact time and date that Jesus will return. But these things will happen relatively soon. Jesus is either coming in our lifetime or we will die and then experience all of the effects of Jesus coming. In either case, that's soon. That is soon. You should be excited for heaven because it is right around the corner. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So John sees the angel who's revealing this glimpse into heaven to him, and he falls at the feet of the angel and worships him. And the angel corrects him. The angel says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant or a fellow slave with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I think this reminds us that we as humans, we are made to worship. We're made to worship. We're made to bow ourselves down, to ascribe glory, to take delight in, and and to communicate worth-ship to things that are worthy of our worship. But this is often misdirected. Like John, we're prone to worship things other than God. John worshipped God's gift of this revelation and the person who delivered that gift. And he should have been worshipping the ultimate giver of that gift. That's what the angel corrects him in saying. I think this is one thing that we need to be on guard with tomorrow. There'll be a lot of gifts tomorrow for, for some of us. And 
they're going to be a lot of awesome gifts, Lord willing. And it's okay to be excited about these gifts and to enjoy these gifts so long as we don't worship those gifts, no matter how great they are. All gifts are from God to be received with thanksgiving and prayer. Every gift tomorrow, I want to challenge you to see them as gifts from God, who is the ultimate giver of all good things, James 1.17. So don't bow down to your gifts. Don't bow down to those who have delivered God's gift to you. You should say thank you, kids. But you should not do that. You should not worship the giver of the gifts. Just like the angel says, hear his words. Worship God. Tomorrow is your opening gifts. Worship God. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Again, right around the corner. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The reality of heaven and this second coming of Jesus and everything that he's going to usher in with his second coming it either should bring us great joy and peace and comfort and excitement or great terror. With the second coming of Jesus comes judgment. And Jesus is bringing his recompense. He, he will repay everyone for what we have done, meaning all debts of our sin will have to be settled. And those who are not in Christ, who are still in darkness, will not have the same fate as those who are marked as being gods. The book of Revelation is not only a letter of great encouragement for believers, it is a letter of great warning to those who are not. So if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you don't trust Jesus, then I urge you to place your trust in Jesus. It is not enough to manufacture excitement and joy once or twice a year. We cannot access heaven through periodic religious devotion. That's what we learned last week in Matthew chapter 9. A bunch of people come up to Jesus and they're questioning Jesus' disciples and their devotion to God because they're not fasting like all the other religious people. And we see that access to God is not through fasting. It's not through means of religious devotion. It's through Jesus. And so getting into the Christmas spirit is not going to settle our debt of sin. Coming to a Christmas Eve service is not going to settle our debt of sin. Coming to every church service every single week of the year is not going to settle our debt of sin. Neither is serving in the church or giving in the church or sacrificing. Those things will not settle our debt of sin. Only Jesus, the God born of flesh who lived a perfect life, gave that life up for us, only faith in this Jesus can give us ultimate forgiveness of our sin and settle that debt of our sin. And those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we have nothing to fear as we read Revelation. Because if you put your faith in Jesus, you've heeded the warning of Revelation. So you get to experience this encouragement and blessing in verses 14 through 19. Look at this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit of the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's an invitation to receive Jesus. So what do you picture when you think about heaven, Mercy House? What's in your mind? I would encourage you to let God's word inform your vision for the end time. And let it encourage you and let it get you excited. We should be excited about heaven because it's where God will be. We should be excited about heaven because it's where we'll get to see the face of God. We should be excited about heaven because the work of God in us will be finally complete. We should be excited about heaven because we will finally have a full assurance of our identity as sons and daughters of God. We should be excited about heaven because Jesus' light will give us nothing to fear ever again. We should be excited about heaven because it's a real place. We should be excited about heaven because we're going there soon. We should be excited about heaven because the fullness of God's plan to redeem all things to himself through his son Jesus will be completed. It'll be done. Mercy House, are you excited about heaven? Then you're ready to be excited about Christmas tomorrow. Then everything that that we're talking about, it starts with the birth of the little baby boy in Bethlehem. The birth of Jesus is the birth of the promised king of this new kingdom that we're talking about. It's because of Jesus that we'll be able to be with God. It's because of Jesus that we'll be able to finally see his face. It's because of Jesus that we won't have to fear the tree of life. Jesus will be our identity. Jesus will be our light. Jesus will be our final and ultimate stronghold and refuge. Jesus will perfectly accomplish every promise in every corner of every word of Scripture. None of this is possible without Jesus entering into creation. We should be excited about tomorrow because it's a reminder to us that God is at work. He's doing these things and he will bring it to completion. He will finish what he has started. And so the anticipation of Advent, it's not just for the four weeks leading up to Christmas. We are living in a season of Advent until Jesus returns. That's why the final promise and the prayer of God's people in the final verse of the Bible is what it is. Look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Jesus is coming soon, Mercy House. And together we can say, come, Lord Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Even communion is an experience of longing for Jesus. This meal that we take, it points to the heavenly communion that will be perfect and complete that we will have with God. And we will have that communion, Mercy House, face-to-face with God. If you are in Christ, I encourage you to come and to take communion. And with the same anticipation and excitement that you have 
for heaven and everything that comes with that future reality, then let's get excited for the birth of Jesus, this promised king who will deliver us into his eternal heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word which gives us such sweet promises that will not fall flat, God. We thank you that your word is a solid foundation that we can stand on. We thank you that your word not only is a solid foundation to give us a sense of security and comfort and peace, Lord, but that it also gives us great hope and anticipation and excitement for what will be, Lord. God, help us to not be satisfied with this world. Lord, I pray for us tomorrow as we celebrate your, your birth. God, I pray that there would be a direct connection to the worship of our hearts to you, God, not to created things, Lord. And I pray that we would see these gifts as gifts from you, God, and that we would see that the greatest gift is not under a tree at all, God. It's you. Lord, help us to long for you more than anything else we long for in this creation, Lord. We thank you that you have paid an incredible price for us to be able to experience heaven with you. Lord, we love you so much, and we long for that day, and we pray that you would come soon. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.